Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. You sure? All right. Yeah, sometimes that extra hour of sleep kind of backfires, and it's a little bit more. It was good to see the sun this morning, though, when I woke up, um, instead of pitch black. Uh, let me give you a couple of um, updates real quick. Uh, we have uh, two babies that we are rejoicing with this morning, two families. God added uh, two new mouths to the litter. The first, that's terrible, okay, Amelia Rose uh, with uh, Michael and Elizabeth Blanzy. Uh, Amelia Rose made her entrance into the world the 28th, which was Wednesday, Tuesday. It was it was the 28th uh, at 12:07 uh, p.m. just afternoon, seven pounds one ounces, one ounce I guess. And there's little Amelia Rose. You can see her. She's a cutie. Yeah, clap. Um, and then not to be outdone, uh, uh, the Armors, Lindsay and Brandon, welcome James David Armour at nine pounds, six ounces. So he's already got like a full body uh, on little Amelia Rose. Uh, and so we added a boy and a girl. He was October 29th. So the day after the 28th. And here's little James David. Uh, so we're excited for Brandon and Lindsay and for uh, Liz and Michael. And um, as uh, we have talked about several times, uh, you can't, it, it takes a church to raise a child. Um, and so whenever we have, uh, I don't know, I don't know what things are going to look like in the future, who does, but uh, when that means we're volunteering for nursery again or serving whenever that happens and helping to teach them, helping to work with them on catechisms and helping to grow them and helping parents when they feel crazy and out of control or when your kid gets to junior high and they will trust anybody's answer but yours, uh, that we as the church uh, step in and love and uh, work together uh, as a family. So, um, yeah, so happy uh, All Saints Day. Uh, happy November. Um, what else? I feel like we got all the cold rain out of the way in October, so... Makes it a little bit easier to hold a candle, although it is a little windy, uh, but we can hold a candle in the warm November sun. Yeah. All right. Next. Um, but uh, this morning, uh, we are, uh, we've been going through this sermon series, um, Not Eyes to See. We've been going through Far As the Curse is Found. Dad, get in there and make that right. All right. Um, although, you know, everything kind of blurs together. We've been going through this sermon series, uh, uh, Far As the Curse is Found. We're going to be in here for a while, uh, but, it, but it's okay. Uh, and so it's, it's looking at the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. And we're going to get into some of the covenants that God has made and how, those, how we see this story unfold. But before we do that, I wanted to take a couple of weeks since we just did Creation and Rebellion to look at a couple of things that are part of our everyday life and kind of unpack 
how that is affected with creation and rebellion, and then uh, redemption. And so today we're going to look at this idea of work. I was going to do work and rest, uh, but rest is, uh, that's a whole different ballgame. And so work, hopefully today is encouraging when we talk about work. Next week with rest will be convicting. I haven't even gotten into it yet because I'm kind of, because we don't rest, we entertain and we escape. But we don't rest. So next week's going to be super convicting. Hopefully this week is, is uh, encouraging though. Um, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and Genesis chapter 2. I can read it. I, we'll, we'll have these uh, behind me on the, on the board, um, but let me read a couple of, of passages here that we've read uh, as we've gone through. All right, Genesis 1, 27 uh, and 28. So God created man in his own image. Remember, he made everything else according to its kind, but when he got to man, it was different. It was according to God's kind. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then when we jump to Genesis 2, we get kind of this zoomed-in version of the creation story. Uh, verses 5 through 9. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, which I kind of, it's like God had uh, uh, the, the sprinkler system, in-ground sprinkler system, before he made rain. So anytime I see it, uh, all right, um, all right, mist was coming up from the land to water, watering the whole face of the ground. I just think that's awesome. Um, and God's like, I'll get to the rain and the forecast and all that stuff. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground. Uh, and remember the other creation narratives that we looked at where they, were t they took blood uh, of, of another God and mixed it with mud. Here, he formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jumping forward to Genesis 2.15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Uh, so I went back and forth on what to preach this week, I'd, and, and, and I had finally settled to go back on this with, with, um, with everything that is, uh, that is just happening in our world. Um, but I, I finally decided to go back to the original text this week because I think, I think this is, I hope this is going to be helpful. What we see here, so far in this sermon series, we've looked at creation, that God created everything good, Right? That includes work. Work is part of God's creation mandate that he looked and said, it is good. And in fact, upon the whole, whole completion of creation, twice he said, it's very good. Uh, in fact, God himself in the creation story is a worker. He is a laborer. He is a gardener. Uh, and work was designed to be good, 
and, and in part was designed to bear God's image. It was given to mankind to bear God's image, to bring order out of chaos, to multiply and produce fruit. And actually what it does in continuing on in bearing God's image, it is continuing on in the creation process. God did not create a, he finished creation, but it's not, he didn't just step back and be like, I'm done. We actually, work was part of that design for us to continue on bearing fruit, to, to image our creator, to have dominion, to govern over justly and rightly, to cultivate so that what God had put there, we were to work it and keep it and help it to continue to grow and multiply. And it was designed to be good. Work and labor is good. It is dignifying. It is dignified as part of creation, and it's dignifying. It's part of what we were created to do. So there's a couple of implications from that, okay? First, work is dignified. Now, I don't, I, I want to, like, I don't know, when I was a kid and, and they did like the hymn night and you were supposed to find your favorite, kid, favorite hymn and as a kid you're like, oh, what's the one that says something funny in it and you look that up? If I'm alone in that, it's fine. Um, I, was, I had down here, all work is dignified, and then somebody's inevitably, inevitably going to go, well, well, wait a minute, what about, okay, most work, labor and work itself is dignified. So you might be the CEO of a large corporation. Um, actually, if you go to Refuge, you're probably not the CEO of a large corporation. Uh, but you might become one, all right? You might become one. Um, and here's what I want you to know. If that is you in that position, you are no more dignified or no more valuable as a human being in that labor than the person in the mailroom or the bagger at the grocery store or the kid flipping burgers or the tradesperson reshingling your roof or doing your electrical work. Dignity of labor is not determined by the amount of income. It's, yeah, okay. Work is valuable, and it is dignified, and it should be seen as such. So when you go to the store, or when you get your oil changed, or when you hire an architect, or when you talk with a law professor at Wash U, or when you pay for your tank of gas, you are encountering an image bearer of God doing dignified labor. Yeah, I think she said amen. Okay? Now, that's the first thing. This is the second thing. And don't bum rush the stage here in either anger or joy. Okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to be controversial here. I'm just trying to clear some, some air. All right? When God created Adam and put him in the garden, he then created Eve as the helper. And Eve's job, that's not a lesser term. God refers to himself as helper. And her job was to help Adam cultivate the garden. They were co-laborers. They worked together. Um, in Genesis 1 that we read this morning, they are both created in the image of God, and they are both given the creation mandate. Now, why am I saying this? Here's why I'm saying this, okay? The idea... Well, let me just say this. I have encountered several women who have been wrecked with guilt over a, more of a cultural mandate than a biblical mandate 
uh, about primary roles and family and all that kind of stuff, okay? Now, don't, stay, stay, don't leave yet. Uh, the idea of a woman staying home with kids, that that is a biblical mandate, that's more of a cultural mandate than a biblical mandate. It doesn't mean it's not practical if it can happen. It doesn't mean it's not part of, 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 uh, of, of, a, of a natural desire. It doesn't mean, but what I'm saying is, that is more of a cultural mandate. Here's what I mean by that. 200 years ago, roughly, when the Industrial Revolution happened, work changed. How we do labor changed. Before that time, primarily, the whole family was in on labor. The job was everybody, okay? Like kids didn't cost money, they made money. They were free labor back then, okay? Now, now they cost money, lots and lots and lots of money. Um, and your job is to raise them to, so that they stop costing so much money. Um, here's what I'm saying. It is a parent, it, it is the parent's job to nurture and nourish and train and raise your children. I'm not going to give you an answer. What I'm saying is sometimes we've made a cultural, we've made a cultural assumption or presumption a biblical mandate. And all I'm wanting to do is free you from the guilt of that weight of I should or I shouldn't. It, never before in the history of time did a man and woman raised in different states have different career paths and goals and desires and then met and fell in love and got married and then when they decided to have a kid, all of a sudden one person had to give up their career path. That's just, that's just not, do you hear what I'm saying? Like that was not historical. That's a newer phenomenon and it didn't happen <clears throat> before. This is... Uh, this is stewardship. So I'm not, I'm not going to give answers. Raising your children is incredibly valuable. It's worthwhile. I'm not, trying to, I'm not even trying to compare one over the other. It is, it is hard and worthwhile labor. Uh, and uh, for parents that do stay home, man, it is often thankless and difficult. There's no quarterly evaluations. There's no raises. There's no, like, you don't sit down and get feedback um, from your employees uh, or from w boss, whoever you might think that is, mother-in-law or, or whoever else. Um, and you're not climbing a corporate ladder. In fact, you probably spend most of your time dragging people off of ladders that they're not supposed to be climbing. And uh, it is hard but glorious work. I personally think it's harder than any corporate job could ever be. Uh, okay? What I don't want to do is presume or devalue or add guilt or weight to an issue of stewardship that is a decision that parents make. Does that make sense? Okay. Cool. I'm glad it does. Let's get past that. That was hopefully to be freedom. Work was designed to be part of the good creation of God. It was good for Adam and Eve. They labored together. They cultivated, and it, and it bore fruit, and they did it together. Okay. Now, um, with that, there's a well-known idiom. Uh, we've been looking at some of these alternate creation stories, so I figured we'd do it again. This is the, the Greek world, uh, the, going to the Greek gods. Uh, Prometheus, which means forethought. Uh, he was a titan god that's credited in the Greek, Greek god world with creating humankind, and supposedly 
He stole fire from Zeus, from the big god. Zeus is the head god. He stole fire from them to give to humanity so that they could form civilization. Zeus was not happy about that, and so in retribution, Zeus gave a gift of a woman to Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus, which means, anybody know? Afterthought. <laughs> that poor brother. Um, anyway, uh, and the gift that he gave was this woman uh, who was beautiful, uh, and she, he gave this woman a jar, and this woman's name was, anybody know? Pandora. Now, later translations got mistranslated, and the jar became a box. And the curiosity of Pandora eventually overwhelmed her, and she opened this jar. And when she opened the jar, out came sickness and despair and uh, pain. And, and according to some translations, also what came out of that jar was work. And she finally put the cap back on to trap the last remaining piece in the jar, which was which we'll get to that. And so in that creation, work was a part of our foolishness. In the Genesis story, work is part of God's good design. We were designed to work. Um, but last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 3. We saw that once Adam and Eve rebelled against God, all of their relationships were broken, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, and their relationship with the ground, their work. So Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says this, Adam said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten, uh, I'm sorry, uh, and to Adam he said, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In a lot of senses, what Adam and Eve are now experiencing is the rebellion of what they were given dominion over. Okay? So the rebellion of the things that they were in charge of, they wanted to become like God. And so just like God is experiencing the rebellion of his children, they now get the rebellion of the things that they've been put over. Even the ground... Uh, is rebelling. Um, how many of you have ever like worked a day and you felt like what you produced was equal to the amount of effort and labor you put in? It, it doesn't happen very often, right? I mean, sometimes you don't put in much and like something explodes and you're like, yes. But most days, it's like, it's just, it feels just like you're treading. Um, now, the curse of the ground is because of Adam, but, but, but everybody gets a piece of it. Uh, our labor and our cultivating and our productivity has now fallen under the curse. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want us to see just how this seeps into everything we do. Um, if you have, and uh, let me clarify here, I'm not simply talking about occupation. All right, even volunteer work, parenting, all of our labors, all of the things that we do, it all falls under here, which includes occupation, what you get paid for. Um, but how many of us get a sense of identity from our labor? 
When somebody asks, what do you do? Who are you? The first thing we usually tell them is the job that we have. Listen, part of that is good. Part of that is creation-ordered. But then part of it's not, right? Part of it is just like, ugh. You feel guilty. You should be better. You should produce more. You feel pride. You're better than those people who are below you. You feel frustration, a project or a relationship or a measure of productivity. This is where our love of money comes into play that we talk about every week, where we feel like if I just had a little bit more, if I could just get that promotion, next time I get that raise, then that'll do it. If I work just a little bit harder, if I had it just a little bit easier, how often do we measure our value in comparison to other people by income? We've set up this whole class system. Uh, or there's this quote, if you do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Right? You ever heard that nonsense? Um, this was a poster that I saw last week that I thought was absolutely brilliant and a bit convicting, and I turned it off immediately. Uh, do what you love, and then you'll work super hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries, and also take everything super personal. <laughs> work becomes more about me. Work more, becomes more about my validation. Remember this? We covered ourselves. Work becomes more about how do I validate myself? How do I feel valuable and worthwhile? Uh, and it becomes more about what I can get and less about what I am actually producing and putting into the world for, for the blessing of others. Um, also, just so you know, doing what you love uh, or even the possibility of that is an extreme privilege uh, that many of us experience. The idea of um, the ability to switch jobs or change jobs, um, to save money, to have retirement, uh, that's relatively new. That's relatively, it's a, it's a Western thought. It's capitalism. I'm not going to demonize it, nor am I going to baptize it. Uh, it's got temptations. Oh, it's got temptations. Look around us. Uh, and yet, it can, be, it can be certainly helpful. Here's what I am going to say. It's not a given, and it's certainly not universal. Please remember that. It demands, maybe even more so, good and proper and right stewardship. It's not to be presumed. Work can help reveal your idolatry. What do we tend to worship most? What do we tend to find our true hope in? Work can help reveal that. <laughs> Am I trying to get somebody's approval? Am I trying to look better than my brother-in-law? Uh, am I trying to um, uh, earn security and comfort? If I just get enough money, then I won't have to worry about stuff. I saw a funny meme for Halloween <laughs> about a guy going, uh, he was going to go as a formerly gifted child. And then anytime he went to anybody's house and they say, what are you supposed to be? His answer was going to be, well, I was supposed to be a lot of things.
How much is work a constant effort to overcome disappointment? Somebody's disappointment. If I work hard enough, if I achieve this, then they'll respect me. Then they'll think highly of me. Those expectations, our striving or lack of striving, maneuvering, leadership styles, work ethic, all of this can reveal to us and to others what we worship most. But perhaps more than any of these things, what the, what the fall, what our rebellion stole from us was the idea of um, the meaning of work. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do anything that we do? Does our labor have meaning? Is there a story behind the motivation for work? Is it just necessary evil that you do until you die? Um, it is not required that we have a specific job or a specific income or a specific measure of impact or whatever it is that we tell ourselves that we should have to, to find joy, to give meaning and purpose, to be fruitful and multiply in our labors. Sometimes I think some of us wonder if our work makes any difference at all. Sometimes uh, I think we may wonder if uh, we feel the weight of all that we are supposed to do and we'll never get it done. Um, so in, in the design of work, we see that work is designed as created good. Uh, and in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see how sin has distorted that. So then the question becomes, can work be redeemed? The answer is yes. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. It's only three verses. Whatever you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of, the, that of many, that they may be saved. And then 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. How does the grand narrative of Scripture change our narrative of work, the way we work? How does the hope of the resurrection, what, what impact does that have? Um, I'm going to finish with this, and, and I'm a, I'll, I'll go quickly. It gives us a moral guide, it gives us a story, and it gives us a hope. First, it gives us a moral guide. When we are restored to God through the work of Jesus, it restores us to our original creation mandate. We're not trying to work for validation. We are working to give blessing, to cultivate, and to bear fruit. That means we're on a different, if you're a follower of Jesus, it means we're on a different plane altogether. Being, below, benown, uh, being beloved and known by God, it doesn't mean that you just, you don't cheat on your taxes or you don't take extra paper clips from the office or, or whatever, um, or, or that you're nice people. It's, it's a totally different paradigm for the work that we do. We're, we're servants, but we're in a different manner. We serve a great king. We don't just serve the boss and kiss up so that when the time for promotion comes, we get it. We don't just serve the company or the company role. Um, listen, every job that you have will ask everything that you have to give and just a little bit more. We don't, we are not called to that. Um, we should do our jobs faithfully. We should do our jobs well. We should be good citizens and good employees. Honoring those above us in the pecking order as image bearers of God. While also dignifying and when and if necessary advocating for those who are below us in the pecking order. 
understanding that no job and no human is without dignity. Right? If we're frustrated with management, the higher-ups, here's what we need to do. We need to evaluate. Am I frustrated for selfish reasons? Because I got passed over or because whatever? Am I frustrated for selfish reasons? Or am I frustrated for just reasons? Are there things that need to change? Are there work environments that need to be better? Pay wages that need to be higher? Justice is just as important in the workplace as it is uh, in the community. If you're the boss, if you're the head honcho, if you're the, if you're the big guy, uh, <clears throat> that gives you a guide for, to change from maybe how do we use our employees to get the job done to um, does our work, is our work valuable and do we give our employees the opportunity to flourish? Do they feel the importance of the work that we have and that we are doing and that they are contributing to? Do they see their part of the story? Are they compensated well for their labors? Do they know that they are important? The gospel gives us a guide, reminds us that life and meaning are not wrapped up in our performance, and this can allow us to make calm and wise decisions. Uh, Lance Berkman, who I think only played one year for the Cardinals, um, but he had a critical hit in Game 6 of the World Series in 2011. And afterwards, he had an interview. He was down to his last strike, and he had an interview, and the person asked him about what what was going through his mind. And I thought his answer was fantastic, especially for, for an athlete. His answer was, I'm a follower, basically, I'm a follower of Jesus. And that doesn't mean that, like, God favors our team or God's going to help me get a hit or whatever. What it does mean is when I walk up to the plate, I realize that my, my life and my value and my worth are not found in whether I get a hit or not. So that takes the pressure off. And I thought, thank you. A good answer from an athlete. You can't always count on that. Um, when I get into difficult conversations, when I'm walking into it, there is a difference. If I go in with the fear of man or a fear of rejection versus if I go in going, okay, God, you're on your throne. My value and worth are not going to rest in this conversation. So I have to sit and listen and say, what do I need to hear? What does this person I'm meeting with need? To, what do we need to hear from you right now? Where do you need to shape us or challenge us or encourage us? The gospel of Jesus gives us a guide for our work, a moral guide. It also gives us a, new, a, a story. Um, your work has meaning and purpose. Even now, uh, time and existence are not simply you're born, you work, you die, try to get as many toys as you can or, or, or whatever, the, whatever the next t-shirts are saying. Um, even the Christianized version of that of you're saved and so you, you go to work to make money but then leave tracks in the in the lunch place to try to get as many people to go to heaven as you can. It's even more than that. Your work in and of itself is meaningful. It's part of how God made you. Um, Our current cultural moment tells you that your work is all about your happiness and fulfillment. And that means if you're doing meaningful work, it's more about your fulfillment of doing meaningful work. Uh, And I would encourage you to gently take that and flush it down the toilet. For the follower of Jesus, the story of our labor is not about our fulfillment. Our fulfillment is in Christ alone. Your labor and your efforts are really designed to tell that story, a greater story. 
And when we start to grasp that, and listen, I, this, this last part, I, I may get choked up because I needed this badly this week. When we start to grasp this, it makes, it, it, the great days are only a taste of what will one day be, and it gives the mundane days meaning and purpose. The great days, you close the sale, uh, you get the merger, you get the promotion, whatever, you, you experience those great days, but that's not it. That's not all you've worked for, and now you've got to live in between that and, and just try to manufacture another great day. It's a taste. It's a taste of what one day will be fully and far more. And so we can treat it not as ultimate, but it also gives the mundane days meaning. When you're working, even in the most mundane of circumstances, you are being part of what you were created and designed to be. Even, uh, even Zoom calls, right? Work was not a necessary evil. It's part of our design. And so when you are studying, when you're cleaning up the house, uh, when you're working with an Excel spreadsheet that I still don't understand, when you're filling out the TPS reports, right? Uh, even there, you are bringing order out of chaos and you are bearing the image of God, so do that well. We went through a book several years ago uh, that was on discipleship, and, and the way the opening chapter was fine, and then it got bad after that. Um, but they, they started talking about how discipleship was the primary thing that a Christian should do. And yes, you could pour concrete for a living, but what's really important is discipleship. And listen, discipleship is important. Yes, believe me. Part of discipleship is for you to realize that that's a false dichotomy. Okay? You should work as unto the Lord. That's important work. And when we were reading that book, was uh, several years ago when they were replacing the other side of the Blanchette Bridge. And they were pouring concrete. And I was like, okay, how do I keep this book out of those guys' hands? Because uh, I do not want them to read that. And while they're pouring concrete on that bridge, somehow think, I should be doing the important work of discipleship. No, you should be pouring concrete to the glory of God. Because my family is going to drive across that bridge. And several people that I love and care about. And millions of people are going to drive across that bridge. So do it well. The gospel of Jesus gives meaning to everyday work and labor. And it causes us to, calls us to do it well. And then finally, it gives us a glorious hope. And here's the hope. You ready? Your work on this earth will be incomplete. Probably. Your work will be incomplete. We will not change our nation. We will not change our world. We will not finish the task. You will not get everything done that you think you need to get done and the weight of the world. You won't get it done. The pandemic, this time at home, apparently for me and everybody, it has really highlighted a lot of home repair projects, right, that have been neglected for however long. And then you start one repair project and then like four more immediately come up, right? I raked my leaves yesterday. Guess what is filled in my yard this morning? Leaves. I knew it was coming, so I didn't. My wife's like, well, aren't you going to rake too? I was like, no, no, I got this down. We're not raking yet. We mow first. We'll rake at the end of November when all the leaves are down, right? It's like doing laundry. You finish one stack and you're like, ah, oh, finally. And then you look on the table and there's four more to go. It seems inevitable, uh, but there is a glory that our work will not be complete. One of my favorite stories is a story called Leaf by Niggle. It was a, a short story written by J.R. Tolkien. Um, Tolkien had started writing The Hobbit, and then that had led into The Lord of the Rings, and he was writing this, and it was just, it was 
Uh, he started with one guy. If you ever step back and look at this, look at how many worlds, how many stories, how many figures are in Lord of the Rings. So he started with one guy, and that guy goes into a world, Middle Earth. As soon as, as, soon as um, the hobbit's name, Frodo, Bilbo. I was like, not Frodo, Bilbo, whatever. As soon as the hobbits leave the Shire, I know that part, there's all these other worlds. And so he starts writing this book, and then you have these creatures, and these creatures have lands, and they have histories that you have to write. And, but they have fought battles against these other creatures from these far lands that need their own history and their own story. And so Tolkien got to the middle of this, and he felt like, I get overwhelmed. Because now he's going to have to somehow work all of these back into a cohesive story and wrap them all up. And I think about that, and I'm like, good grief. At some point, you just got to hit like the end of the row. And, the, and there was a wall, and they couldn't go any further. And everybody, now it's time for everybody's stories to come back together. So in the middle of him writing this, um, he was asked by the Dublin Review to write a short story. And the short story that he wrote was Leaf by Niggle. Uh, and I will tell you that the version that Tim Keller, which I will recommend this book every day of the week, um, every good endeavor on, on how to judge your faith and your work how do you incorporate your faith and work? Uh, because the way Keller retells the story is a whole lot easier to read than the way Tolkien actually writes it. Okay, so that's where I'll recommend it. Um, Niggle, which that name means, it's, it's like a fidgety uh, or uh, ineffective worker. Niggle is an artist. That's his job. Um, and he's a perfectionist. And, and his work, it, it's never quite good enough. Uh, which means he goes home on Sunday afternoon and goes back through everything he said and didn't say and how he should have said it better and how everything would have been way more effective if he would have done this. And, and he just, he gets hung up on a lot of certain details. Well, the townspeople have asked Niggle to paint for them a mural. And so he's going to paint a, a, a work of nature. He has this vision in his mind of a field, and then at the edge of the field, there's this beautiful tree that just shoots up out of the field, and it's phenomenal and glorious, and then behind the tree, there's this stream, and on the other side of the stream, there's this mountain, and in the mountain, there's all these worlds that exist in this mountain. So you can see, you can see uh, Tolkien writing himself into this story. And so he goes to work, and all he can do, he tries to finish the details, but he's stuck on the first leaf and he can't get past it. And so he's working on the details of this leaf. His greatest frustration comes from all of the distractions that seem to come along while he's trying to finish this painting. Now, he knows he's got to get it done before the man comes for his journey, which, which is death. Before the man shows up to take him on his carriage ride. His neighbor, Parrish, P-A-R-I-S-H, uh, is needy. There's a storm that comes through, and he has to help Parrish clean things up. Uh, there is um, countless things where he needs him to run errands. Parrish's wife gets sick, and so he has to help care for that. And eventually, uh, he continues to be worried that he's not going to get done. Well, eventually, the carriage comes, and it's time for his final journey. It's time uh, for Niggle to be taken uh, to eternity. When the townspeople come, they find his grand work. They uncover in his home his grand work, which is one leaf. And so they take the leaf and they hang it up in the middle of the town and they put the title under it, Leaf by Niggle. Niggle is distraught as he enters the carriage, which is the symbol of death. The driver takes him along the road through the outskirts of the town 
and eventually over a bridge where he sees a field that looks vaguely familiar. And as they cross over the bridge, he looks further, and in the middle of the field, there is his tree. And it's perfect. And it's whole. It's everything he imagined it to be. It's the whole vision that he had. And it's complete, just as he had pictured it. Every detail, whole and perfect and done. This is a crazy hard time. This is a crazy hard time. For me personally, I am fighting battles every day between courage and hope and grief and despair and disappointment. Um, I don't quite know how to lead spiritually. Um, I have an idea, and then I think, well, that's not going to work because of this, 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 and this, and then it just quickly dies every day. But here's why I needed this today. There is a tree. God has called us to a labor. He has called us to labor well. He has called us to a good and right and just and holy work, and it will be frustratingly incomplete in this life. And yet, and yet, there, there is a tree. The ultimate work that Christ has come to do is complete. The calling and the vocation of our present day is real and, and, and is necessary, but the pressure to fix the world and everything in it is off. We labor faithfully. We help and love our neighbor. This week, of, of all weeks, as we labor, as we speak, as we grieve, as we hope, as we vote, as we relate, as we love, are we doing this as unto the Lord? Or are we doing it as if our ultimate hope is wrapped up in our completed work? Here's the good and bad news. November 4th, every single person you know, yourself especially, will still need Jesus will still need the presence of the Holy Spirit to convict and guide and give hope and comfort. Your labor matters. It's important. God has dignified you in what you do. Ephesians tells us that there are works that God has prepared in advance that we would walk in them. And yet, ultimately and eternally, there is rest. The work is is done. Let's pray.
Jesus, thank you that you have completed the ultimate labor. Even the things that you've called us to do are ultimately fulfilled. And that does not relieve from us the duty nor the joy of the labor you've called us to do. But perhaps our fears and anxieties and stresses feeling as if we are the ones that need to fix the world. May we walk humbly and faithfully and justly. May we, as your bride, be faithful in doing what we can do, not with indifference, but with hope. May we grieve when necessary. May we be bold and courageous when necessary, but ultimately, thank you for the testimony of those who have gone before, none of which have completed your work. Save Christ alone. One day we'll experience it fully. May our labors not be for our own selfish gain. May they not be for our self-protection. May they be for your glory. May they bear good fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.